Five billion-ish people will watch the FIFA World Cup later this month, more than half of population Earth. Oh, what a goal! What a strike! The pocket-sized Gulf nation of Qatar will host. Countries compete fiercely for the right to host the World Cup, and when Qatar won, it was a win for the soccer-obsessed Arab world. But then came the allegations. Had Qatar cheated? If you sort me out, hook me up for 2018, we will work behind the scenes to help you in 2022. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, and let's come up with a deal. Or is this a case of a country unfairly accused of corruption when everyone involved is on some level pretty corrupt? Coming up on Today Explained. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. It's Today Explained. I'm Noel King. This is the first time ever that the World Cup is being held in an Arab country. And that is exciting full stop. Because as we're going to hear, the evolution of soccer in the Arab world in some ways is the evolution of the Arab world, from colonialism to revolution. Abdullah El Arian is a professor of Middle East history at Georgetown University in Qatar. It's like a franchise situation. He edited a book called Football in the Middle East, State, Society, and the Beautiful Game. Abdullah, let's start with the good stuff. What's it like in Doha now? What has the city gotten? A lot of new buildings, new roads, a metro system that wasn't here just a few years ago. It debuted in 2019. 110 cars will make up to 700,000 trips each day. A new airport, so there's the physical transformation of the city. The primary artery for cars will be transformed into a pedestrian-only entertainment district for an estimated 1.2 million fans. There's new parts of the city, entire neighborhood sections that have just sort of come up out of nowhere just in the last kind of five or six years or so. You know, a lot of the, the massive billboards and the faces of all of the, like, world football's biggest stars sprawling all over, skyscrapers and things like that. And, of course, everywhere you look, there's a new stadium that has popped up. A stadium designed to reflect the nomadic culture of the region. The design of the stadium resembles the Bedouin Betishar, which is the welcome sign back in the days. They built seven stadiums, an eighth was refurbished, but all of the games, the 64 matches, will be held within these eight stadiums. Give me a sense of how important soccer is to the Middle East. You know, the game is is definitely the most popular sport uh, anywhere in this region. You see entire cities kind of turn out for their, you know, major club matches. You can hear a pin drop whenever the national teams are playing, whether it's in Egypt or Algeria or Morocco, because everyone is sort of tuned in, whether in their radios, 
in the cafes or even those who are attending the matches in stadiums. So there's a real passion and a sense that, you know, the, the national teams tend to be kind of really representative of the entire country in a way that you could even argue is more representative of the population and of the society than sometimes their own political leaders are. The game was introduced really through the colonial experience. Most of the countries in the Middle East were at one point or another colonized by either Britain or France. And so it was during the course of that colonial experience that you see colonial officials introducing new educational curriculums, trying to modernize the population. Part of that included things like physical education that they believed was important to develop what they called properly obedient individuals. Uh. With the sole of the foot. And so this meant kind of introducing the game as kind of, you know, a very structured game with a set of rules. For ball control is essential to skillful play. That required a certain kind of discipline and that this was ultimately going to kind of educate them into a sort of Western way of thinking and acting. And so this was the way that they tried to kind of groom and cultivate the elites within the societies that they conquered. And through games like heading tennis, keeping the boys interested in learning the right way of bringing the head into contact with the ball. But of course, the game, like most things, when it comes to popular culture, has the, the tendency to take on a life of its own. And all of a sudden, it becomes a source of empowerment for populations against colonial rule against colonial rule, and then later against authoritarian rule, right? So, Abdullah, I lived in Cairo during the Arab Spring, and I'd cover these massive protests. And I knew to look out for the ultras, the super fans of these big teams like Ahli and Zamalek, because they were an organized contingent. They seemed to be leading things. And for an American journalist, it was like, I cannot imagine, you know, Jets fans doing this. We're talking about authoritarian contexts, especially in places like Egypt and Algeria and Syria and, and elsewhere, where you don't see the opportunity for people to simply found a political party or to simply go and, and kind of organize explicitly on a political basis. The Cairo Derby is the biggest fixture in the Middle East's football calendar, a bitter rivalry between Africa's two most successful teams, Ahli and Zamalek. And so what we tend to see more of is a kind of an alternative politics, which means people within society are likely to gather through things that might seem innocuous from the perspective of the regime. This is politics. Zamalek is the government. You know, well, you're not going to really prevent people from gathering in stadiums or coffee houses or, you know, hookah lounges where they're going to sit and watch matches and support their favorite clubs. And at the same time, that then becomes an opportunity by which people do ultimately, naturally engage in political discussion. The club ideas, ethics, strategies, plans didn't contradict with the idea of revolution. They are actually the same. And so the idea that football fan groups were a part of the kind of the collective of people who mobilized in these mass protests in places like, you know, Tahrir Square or even in Pearl Roundabout in Bahrain, for instance, or in Yemen or in Syria or Libya or Algeria, these groups tended to already have that kind of sense of camaraderie, having already fought off security forces when they were confronting the police in stadiums. <laughs> 
وطني باطل 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 احمد عز باطل so when there was this assault by the security forces in a number of these places we end up seeing that it's actually the football ultra groups that tend to kind of stand firm um in defense of the protesters in Tahrir Square and i think that also then helped encourage the broader movements that were protesting and mobilizing in those days be able to stand firm and so we we saw quite an effective resistance to a lot of the typical crackdowns that we saw on the part of the state all right so you have this combination of beautiful game extraordinary history of protest but abdullah let me ask you now about the criticism of qatar because investigative reporting suggests that many migrant workers died while building these stadiums and all of this other infrastructure that you guys have gotten qatar's emir its leader says essentially the rest of the world is picking on us because we're a little arab country do you think he has a point I happen to think that a lot of the questions that have been raised around the way that the Qatar World Cup has come together uh, are incredibly valid and they're serious questions that need to be taken on without sort of any kind of equivocating. But I don't think it's been helpful that so much of these critiques relied on very borderline orientalist kind of narratives of just creating an exceptional situation that Qatar occupies without actually taking on the kind of the much deeper serious issues having to do with things like the global flow of labor and capital and all of the various parties that are implicated to just simply say you know this is just something that um you know is is just the product of a certain culture um or a certain kind of specific environment as opposed to kind of thinking about all of these different uh, forces that have converged to create the the kind of conditions that exist The conditions that exist include one that has made things very awkward for Qatar. On the face of it, there is no staggeringly obvious reason for Qatar to have won the right to host the World Cup. It's smaller in size than Connecticut. It needed to build um, a plethora of stadiums. It built a new railway network. Everything needed to be built from scratch. And no less an authority than the U.S. Department of Justice says that in the process of competing to host the World Cup. Qatar did some bribing and FIFA was all too happy to accept. It's coming up. Support for today explained comes from Mint Mobile, the only cell phone that tastes good. When the deal is too good to be true, there's probably a catch, right? That incredibly cheap flight to Europe? You probably can't bring a bag or pick your seat or use the restroom. So, when I tell you that Mint Mobile offers wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month when you purchase a 3-month plan, you're probably wondering what's the catch? Well, according to Mint Mobile, there is no catch. According to Mint Mobile, it's only 15 bucks a month and their plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get this new customer offer and your new 3-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com/explain that is mintmobile.com/explain. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/explain. $45 upfront payment required, 
equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Today Explained World Cup Edition. Tarek, tell me your full name and tell me what you do. Yeah, I'm Tarek Pandra. I'm a global sports correspondent with the New York Times. A lot of that actually features the sort of byways and highways and the behind the scenes ways of, of the world of sport, notably football. What is FIFA exactly? FIFA is essentially the global governing body for the world's most popular sport. It is based in, in Zurich and it is composed of 211 member nations. In a sense, it has more members than the United Nations. Today, football is a global game. At FIFA, it's our responsibility to develop the game for future generations and to protect its integrity. But that also means never forgetting the principles on which we were founded. FIFA hosts the World Cup every four years and about seven or eight years before a tournament begins, there is a jockeying for hosting this because there is nothing bigger in the world, perhaps, say, the um, Olympic Games than, than, than the Football World Cup. And FIFA starts a, a bidding competition, which lasts between 18 months and two years, typically, for each World Cup. And now is voted on by a representative of each of its 211 members at a Congress. For Qatar, this wasn't the case. This was done by a group called the FIFA Executive Committee, a high-powered band of of men, and they were all men. Say I'm a country, Mm -hmm. I would really like to host the World Cup, and I want to do everything above board. What do I typically do? How do I typically approach FIFA? You typically won't get the World Cup if you try and do everything above board. That's what his no, Tarek. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, let me, let's phrase that slightly differently. Um, what do countries that really want to host the World Cup typically do, uh, with the understanding that it can't be done above board? Right. So, on the face of it. There is a a bid committee that is formed. We are just moments away from the big decision in Zurich, Switzerland, where football's ruling body will announce who will host the 2022 FIFA World Cup. Lots of nice video packages, celebrity endorsements, trips to your country for the FIFA executive class. What will it mean to the region if the world's greatest sporting event comes to the Middle East for the very first time? It happened in South Africa. You are really trying to curry favour with this group of important people that they may bestow their votes upon you, so you create a a, a bid. It is a challenge. It's always a challenge to, to host a World Cup, but I think that we're definitely up to that challenge. And towards the end... There will be a a bid book, which is a multi, multi page book, which will feature all the guarantees that FIFA requires from security to hotel accommodation to what type of stadiums you have, transport, etc. And you would say, our offering is better than everyone else's. And guess what? We can also generate billions of dollars in revenue for you. And here's how. 
Um, unfortunately, I don't think most of the voters will ever read these books because they, they, they in the past haven't. It's, it's other things that have tended to sway their votes. As I said previously, it was a small group of people you had to curry favour with. So in a sense, it was finding out what the quirks and peccadilloes of each particular voter might be and how you might be able to influence them. In, in many cases, that has turned out to be cold, hard cash. Cash is a good quirk and it's a good peccadillo. Um, it's it's 2022, so the lobbying started, uh, by your math, somewhere around 2014, 2015. Well, in this case, it was a very strange process. Oh, what happened? Because Qatar actually started lobbying for the World Cup in, uh, I believe, 2009. Because FIFA, in its wisdom at the time, decided to offer two World Cups in the same vote. It is an honor and a privilege to welcome you all to Zurich for the 2018 and the 2022 FIFA World Cup host announcement. So the 2018 World Cup that went to Russia and the 2022 World Cup. The winner to organize the 2022 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. That created conditions ripe for even more skullduggery than had been the norm before. It allowed different nations to collude with each other to create behind-the-scenes deals. If you sort me out, hook me up for, for, for 2018, we will work behind the scenes to help you in 2022. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, and let's come up with a deal. All of this, on the face of it, based on FIFA's rules and regulations at the time, and yes, they had rules and regulations, ethics rules, flew in the face of those, but all of this was, was taking place. And so uh, what do we know ultimately about why Qatar was chosen? Its bid was the most extravagant at the time. So it spent publicly, you know, almost 200 million on, on, on bidding, far more than everyone else. That meant sponsoring conventions in, in Africa where voters were hiring ambassadors like Zinedine Zidane, um, the, the France soccer legend, among mm. others for huge fees. So Qatar on that level was very visible. Thank you for believing in expanding the game. Thank you for giving Qatar a chance. And we will not let you down. You will be proud of us. You will be proud of the Middle East. And I promise you this. Then it gets a little bit darker, I guess. What prompted these guys to choose Qatar, which among the bidders, the United States of America, Australia, Korea, and Japan for 2022. Among that group, it was clearly the most um, unsuitable offer in, in a sense from an infrastructure point of view. It needed to pretty much rebuild or build an entire country to host this tournament. Let's not forget it's smaller in size than Connecticut, smaller than any previous World Cup host. It needed to build... Um, a plethora of stadiums, it's built a new railway network, roads, hotels, everything needed to be built from scratch. So 
it's very, very difficult to understand, you know, in a sense of reality, in a way, why why these guys would choose Qatar. And then the only kind of open question is, what persuaded them to do it? And since then, there has been several investigations, media reports, you name it, about corruption within FIFA. The Department of Justice in the US, part of a broader investigation into soccer corruption, in an indictment, said three members and named them, these three South Americans, had taken money to vote for Qatar. It doesn't say, though, that it was the Qataris that paid for this, and that creates this continuing grey area, this miasma around what exactly happened. What has Qatar said about this indictment? Have they just tried to stay out of it? Qatar has pretty much held a solid line from the day in on December the 2nd, 2010, when the former FIFA president opened the envelope to reveal it would host the World Cup, that it played by the rules and that it has absolutely nothing to, to feel guilty about, nothing to apologize for, and that a lot of the attacks are, in essence, anti-Arab in some way, or sour grapes from those who lost. Did FIFA make any changes after that indictment, after any of this mess? Has FIFA changed at all? Well, FIFA was forced to change. I mean, the scandal, it's hard to over um, play how, how big and what a shocking moment it was. Even by FIFA standards, these are extraordinary developments. At the behest of the U.S. Attorney General, seven senior FIFA officials arrested at the crack of dawn concerning allegations of fraud, racketeering and money laundering. That threatened FIFA's very existence. It was some of their most senior, senior officials that were involved in this. Um, they had to change. Uh, a, a reform uh, committee was organized. The, the top leadership over the next months was removed, decapitated, and replaced with new people. The reforms have meant, for example, the World Cup is now chosen by the entire membership, 211 um, national soccer federations and not 24 people behind closed doors. The votes are made public, which they were not before. But what I would say is culturally, very little has changed. The behind closed door antics still exist these highly paid sinecures for people who support the hierarchy are still well in place. And this is very much in part of how FIFA has always been run. Qatar's emir, its leader, says his country is being unfairly criticized, unfairly singled out. Is there anything that suggests he might have a point? I guess to have that opinion at best is naive, uh, because if you are going to want to host this, and you are hosting this, that level of scrutiny is to be expected, particularly given the circumstances around Qatar, its bid, and then its decade-long build-up to staging the event. The amount of building work, the cost, is unprecedented. Qatar would say, well, that's not just for the World Cup. We would build this stuff anyway. But really, you know, it's a tiny place. It has to build eight stadiums in a race against time and has involved the importation 
of some of the poorest people in the world to act as migrant labourers. Then you have the, 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 the issues around other human rights. Being gay is a criminal offence in Qatar. So a lot of this scrutiny surely is to be expected. Next Friday on Today Explained World Cup Edition, we're going to interview a migrant worker from Kenya who was employed in Qatar. And I promise you will not want to miss that one. Today's show, edited by Amina El Sadi, produced by Halima Shah, engineered by Afim Shapiro, fact-checked by Laura Bullard. I'm Noel King, and it's Today Explained. <laughs> <laughs> 